Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. All right, are we ready in the back? Okay. Well, Shabbat Shalom. We are in a series, an extended series on the book of Mark, going verse by verse through the entire gospel. Today is part 14. We're going to look today at the first part of chapter 6, uh, at the offense uh, of Yeshua, how he, how he is offensive. So turn with me to Mark chapter 6, uh, verses 1 to 13. And we have it on the overhead as well. Yeshua left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When Shabbat came, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who had heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things? They asked. Uh, What's this wisdom that's been given to him? Uh, What are these remarkable miracles he's performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Miriam's son and and the brother of James and Joseph and and Judah and Simon? Uh, Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Yeshua said to them, A prophet not without honor except in his own hometown, among his relatives, uh, in his own home. And he couldn't do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. Then Yeshua went around teaching from village to village. Calling the twelve to him, he began to send them out two by two uh, and gave them authority over impure spirits. Uh, And these were his instructions. Take nothing for your journey except your staff. Uh, No bread, no bag, uh, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place won't welcome you or or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people uh, with oil and, and healed them. Amen. Uh, now, the key phrase here in this passage is, they took offense. Uh, the people of Nazareth, Nazareth uh, were offended at Yeshua. Uh, the word here in Greek is, is scandalon, where we get our word scandal from. Uh, they were scandalized by him. Uh, now, to be scandalized or offended isn't just to disagree with someone, but to, be, but to viscerally reject uh, and to be hostile uh, to what they what they said or did. Uh, so on the overhead, uh, this passage is telling us that Yeshua always, everywhere, offends people. Uh, he evokes visceral rejection and hostility. And if you follow Yeshua, you will too. And that's the point. So now on the overhead again, this well-known historian, uh, J.P. Meyer, he puts it this way. What's beyond dispute is that within the ministry of only three years, Yeshua of Nazareth both attracted and infuriated his contemporaries. He both mesmerized and alienated the ancient world. And he unleashed a movement that has done the same ever since, and thus changed the course of history forever. Again on the overhead. Unless you understand this offensiveness of Yeshua... Or he says, crown me or kill me. Worship me or hate me. But you cannot just like me. Uh, I don't leave you that lukewarm option. Unless you understand this offensiveness of Yeshua, 
you will not understand who he is or what it means to follow him. So on the overhead, uh, we're going to look at three things in this text today. Number one, Yeshua is offensive. Number two, why he's offensive. And then thirdly, how you can and should be selectively offensive too. So number one, Yeshua is offensive. We see this at the beginning of the passage. He goes to his own hometown, God Nazareth, and they take offense at him. Uh, now back in Mark 3, we're told that the leaders from Jerusalem were offended at Yeshua. Uh, these are the elites, uh, the, the leaders. And we're also told in chapter 3, with respect to these elites, that both the Herodians and the Pharisees plotted together to kill him. In other words, both the secular and the religious wings of the elites were offended at him, both the left and the right. Uh, These were two groups of people that that hated each other and didn't agree on anything else, but they agreed on this. Yeshua had to go. So the elites were offended uh, on both the, the civil and the religious end of the spectrum. Now we come to Nazareth. Nazareth was a humble little backwater of a village. Uh, if you blink, you'd miss it. It was a real nowheresville. Remember John 1, Nathaniel says, uh, can anything good come out of Nazareth? How can the Messiah come from this little nothing place like Nazareth? Uh, and these townspeople, they knew Yeshua growing up. Uh, they're, 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 these are grassroots people, simple people, humble, working class people. And they're offended at him too. They are the very opposite of the elites. And they're offended too. So this is everybody. Uh, The big city, the small town. Uh, The elites, the common people. Uh, The secular, the religious. The upper class, the lower class. Everyone is offended at Yeshua. Now how is this possible? Because all these different groups, they don't even like each other or agree with each other or anything. Some of them hate each other. Uh, So how can they all be offended at Yeshua? And the answer is this. Yeshua offends everyone, but in different ways. Every one of these groups has a very different reason for why they're offended at Yeshua. Uh, in fact, a lot of, a lot of you might be offended uh, uh, as, and, and, for, and why you're offended at Yeshua. Uh, I'm sorry. In fact, a lot of, a lot of uh, them would be offended at why you're offended at Yeshua. So everyone is offended for different reasons. But they all agree on one thing, that he's offensive. Uh, they all reject him for various different reasons. So, for example, today in our Western secular culture, many people who are not Yeshua followers, nonetheless, they like certain things about the gospel. Uh, they like the teachings uh, on grace uh, and mercy uh, and forgiveness. They like turning, turning the other cheek uh, and, and forgiving your enemy. Uh, they like the emphasis on love. But they hate Yeshua's teachings, on the other hand, uh, on sexual purity, uh, on biblical morality. Uh, They reject the biblical ethic uh, of celibacy outside of marriage. uh, And marriage is is monogamous, uh, monogamous, uh, lifelong commitment between one man and one woman. And they go absolutely apoplectic when the New Testament says there's only one way to salvation. And that Yeshua is that one true way. he's He's the one and only Lord and Savior of the world. Uh, and that no one comes to the Father but through him. Western secular people foam at the mouth when they hear that. <laughs> but now let's go to a traditional culture. Let's go to the East, uh, the Far East or, or the Middle East. 
uh, and that now say a Western person which shares with them his objection to the gospel. Well, there couldn't just be one true religion. And the person from a traditional culture would say, why not? Uh, I have no problem with that. Uh, and I have no problem with the exclusive claims of Yeshua. Uh, and the Middle Eastern or Far Eastern person would also agree with the biblical stand on traditional morality uh, and sexual ethics. But if you then talk to them about mercy and grace and forgiving 70 times 7 uh, and turning the other cheek, they'll think you're nuts. <laughs> or if someone asks you for your cloak, you give them your, your coat as well. They would laugh at you. They would be offended at that. They would say, anyone like that has no integrity, uh, no courage, no sense of family honor and standing. Uh, you have no sense of shame and honor. Uh, you must take revenge on anyone who slights or dishonors you or, or your family. You must not lose face. No one can live like the gospel demands. Forgiveness, they would say in, in, the, in the Eastern cultures, forgiveness is for the weak and the despised and slaves. Not for us. We believe in an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. We believe in honor. So you see, every culture is offended by different aspects of the gospel. But everyone is offended by Yeshua in some way. He doesn't fit in any mold. In John 15, 18, Yeshua tells his disciples, If the world hates you, remember, it hated me first. The world hates me, Yeshua says. He doesn't say, the northern hemisphere hates me more than, than the southern hemisphere, or, 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 or the east hates me more than the west, or, or, or the wealthy hate me more than the poor. No, he says, he doesn't say that. He says, the whole world hates me, everyone. There's no people group or class or, or, or ethnic group uh, that's more favorable or, or more likely naturally to receive me. Yeshua offends everyone, but for different reasons. That's point number one. He is offensive. Now, are you struggling, or do you know someone today who's struggling with Yeshua faith, with the gospel, because there's, there's a certain part that you or they find offensive in the gospel? If so, let me ask you a question. Maybe you can ask your friend this same question, if, if that's them. Why should what your culture and your mindset, uh, why should the part of the world that you happen to be from, why should your culture's troubles with the gospel, why should they trump every other culture's view? Because, you know, uh, the things that you like about the gospel, some other culture hates. Uh, and things that you, that you don't like about the gospel, and maybe you think it is, is regressive, uh, uh, some other culture thinks it's great and even progressive. And so for you to reject the gospel because you think that certain aspects are regressive, well, that's very culturally narrow of you. You're saying, my culture's views of the gospel uh, are superior to any other culture's views. So, for example, my Western secular culture's views of sexual morality are superior to any other culture's views. But consider this. If Yeshua is who he says he is, if he is the Son of God raised from the dead, then number one, why do we care, or why should you care, what your culture says? And number two, if he's from outside of this world, he is going to offend you in some way. If he's from outside of any culture, he's going to offend every culture in some way, even though it'll be different for each and every culture. But, but every culture in some way will be offended by him. Why? Because he's bringing not an earthly, 
but a heavenly standard. And so if Yeshua truly is the Son of God, you will be offended by some aspect of his teaching. Ironically, that's actually evidence that he is who he says he is. If Yeshua is from outside of this world, from heaven, well, of course he's going to offend you at some point. If he's real, he will offend you at some place. So the only question is this. Is Yeshua then the Son of God risen from the dead? If not, you can ignore him. But if he is, you must accept him, all of him, including the parts that offend you and your particular culture sensibilities. That's what it means for Yeshua to be Lord. So let me ask you, if Yeshua's teachings on X, Y, or Z offends you, does that mean that because he offends you in some way, does that mean that he could not be the Son of God risen from the dead? Well, well, if that's not what you're saying, then you have to give up your offense. Why? Because if he is the Son of God raised from the dead, then all, that's all that ultimately matters. Uh, and if he is the Son of God from heaven, of course he's going to offend you in some way, uh, because you're a product of your particular time and place and culture, and Yeshua transcends all of that. In fact, he will offend you at some point because you are part of this world. And Yeshua says, the world hates me. That's point number one. Yeshua is offensive. And the overhead, point number two. Uh, we, the second thing we learn in this passage is why he's offensive. Uh, when we see uh, in this passage what led his hometown to reject him, we're, we're going to begin to see why Yeshua is offensive to so many people. Notice what the people of Nazareth, they say about him. Look at Mark 6, 23. They say, where did this man get such things? What's this wisdom that, that's been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he's performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Miriam's son and, and the brother of Yaakov, Yosef, uh, Yehuda, and Shimon? Aren't these his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Basically, they're saying this. Who does Yeshua think he is? He's not such hot stuff. <laughs> we know his family. Uh, we've known him growing up. Uh, we can't believe that the Messiah, that the Savior of Israel, will come from such humble socioeconomic stock. So that, that's part of the offense. But there, there's more going on here as well. On the overhead, uh, this commentator, Bill Lane, he writes this. The people of Nazareth's discernment could not penetrate the veil of ordinariness Surrounding Yeshua. Ordinariness. Uh, if this isn't the Messiah, well, the Messiah is going to deliver us from the Romans. Uh, so he can't be so, therefore, so familiar, so ordinary. This offended the townspeople. And here's why the ordinariness of Yeshua offends the normal human, human understanding, our understanding of how salvation works or should work. Yeshua's ordinariness subverts. The normal way that our hearts think about uh, and want salvation to be, uh, in two ways at least, on the overhead. Uh, first, Yeshua's ordinariness subverts what I'm going to call the trajectory or the direction of salvation. So uh, in this book called The Scandal of Jesus by uh, Ramachandra, he's a believer from Sri Lanka, uh, he says this, all other religions offer as salvation some form of liberation from ordinary humanness. He's saying on all other religions, salvation is seen in terms of someday escaping the shackles of our humanity and our individuality and our physical body. 
Uh, it's transcending the ordinary human existence that we have today, like, like eating, drinking, sleeping, working. Every other religion says well, salvation is one day being released from the ordinary humanness into some kind of ethereal, esoteric, transcendent, pure spiritual existence. But this author goes on to say that biblical salvation lies not in escape from this world, no, but in transformation of this world. And this perspective is unique to Messianic faith, Yeshua faith, versus any other religion. You will not find hope for this world in any other religious system. This biblical vision is unique. So the ordinariness of Yeshua, it subverts, it undermines, and it contradicts what every other religion says about salvation. Every other religion says salvation is God releasing us from this ordinary human existence. But according to the Bible, salvation goes in the opposite direction, the opposite trajectory. God, in the person of Yeshua, comes down into our humanness. He gets entangled in it, if you will. Uh, he immerses himself in ordinary human life. He's not only fully God, he's also fully man. He eats, he drinks, he concerns himself with the needs of everyday human life, uh, and therefore he can sympathize with your frailties because he's your great high priest. He gets involved in and he experiences the vulnerability and the pain and the suffering of ordinary human life. And he dies to redeem human life. And one day he's not going to take us to heaven, but one day he's going to bring heaven down to earth and create a new heavens and a new earth, the scriptures tell us. And this new heaven and this new earth, this is our goal. God's not removing us. Rather, he's coming down to renew ordinary human life. In the new heavens and the new earth, you will not be floating on clouds playing harps. <laughs> We will walk and run and leap and dance, maybe even fly. <laughs> we will hug and kiss and eat and drink in the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, there will be food and drink. There will be art and music and education and science and economics and government. Probably the one thing there won't be is lawyers. <laughs> there will be singing and dancing and worship. There'll be hills and skies and lakes and forests and trees. And in the last day, a glory will come down from Yeshua that not only will transform us, but will transform all creation. And we're told this in Psalm 96, verse 12. But the trees of the forest sing for joy. And then Isaiah 55, verse 12. You'll go out with joy and be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills will burst forth with song before you. And the trees of the field will clap their hands. Now, if all of nature will sing and dance and clap their hands, what will you and I be able to do? Again, the Ramachandra, this author from Sri Lanka, he then writes this on the overhead. This is why when, somebody, when some people ask me, do you think that there's salvation in other faiths, other faiths too? I always ask them, what kind of salvation are you talking about? Not this kind. This kind of salvation is in no other religion. No faith holds the promise of eternal salvation for this world, this ordinary world that the cross and the resurrection hold out. No other religion even claims this kind of salvation and the renewal of everyday life. Now this claim is offensive. 
It's offensive to say that only Yeshua faith is claiming salvation for this world. Uh, for the ordinary world and ordinary human life. The ordinariness of Yeshua, the ordinariness of the gospel, tells us that only Judeo-Christian, Messianic, biblical faith is even promising this kind of salvation. And that's offensive. People say, don't you believe that all religions are going to the same place? The answer is no. They have totally different trajectories. They don't even claim to all be going to the same place. On the overhead, is that offensive? Yes. So number one, the ordinariness of Yeshua subverts our understanding of the trajectory of salvation. And then number two, the ordinariness of Yeshua subverts our understanding of the graciousness of salvation. What do I mean by this? Second Kings 5, this is a great story of Naaman. He, he was this great Syrian general, uh, but he had leprosy. And he hears about the, the great God of Israel. So he decides he's going to go to Israel and to the prophet Elisha, uh, this prophet of God, for his healing. So he takes everything with him he thinks he needs to in order to, to get his, his healing. He takes lots of money. He takes gifts of, of fine clothing. He takes his resume, which are these letters of recommendation from the king of Syria. Uh, and he also brings his, a sword, his, his sword, in case the Lord wants him to do some great act of, of prowess, some great deed in order to, to win and uh, to conquer his salvation and, and obtain his salvation. But when he gets there, what happens? Elisha doesn't, doesn't even come to the door, won't even greet him. Uh, Elisha sends his servant with this message, if you want to be healed, go wash in the Jordan River seven times. Now Naaman is furious when he hears this. And he stomps off in anger. Uh, he's insulted by such a lowly requirement for his healing. Uh, and the servants go after him. Master, master. They try, try to get him to change his mind. Now why is he offended? He's offended by the ordinariness of God's prescription. Naaman in essence is saying, Do you mean that my money doesn't mean anything at all? Uh, that my letters of recommendation uh, don't mean anything? Uh, that my sword, my prowess, my accomplishments mean nothing? Uh, anyone can go wash in the Jordan River. Are you trying to say that I'm on the same level as, as any common person? Now his servants, they, they beg him to reconsider. Look at Second Kings 5.13. Naaman's servants, uh, they went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? Uh, how much more so then when he tells you, wash and be cleaned, be cleansed? Naaman expected to be asked to do some great deed. Uh, that would have been fine. Uh, he expected the prophet to say, rescue the damsel in distress, imprisoned in yonder tower. <laughs> or slay the dragon, terrorizing our kingdom. Or bring me the broomstick of the wicked witch of the West. <laughs> and then Naaman would have said, yeah, now there's a salvation worthy of my prowess and my heroism. Uh, there's an appropriate salvation uh, for a great man like me. There's a salvation that fits my ego. You see, if he had been told to do some great deed, uh, or if, if you've been told to do some great deed, uh, to earn your salvation, then you could have said, yeah, I don't need charity. I just need a chance to prove myself. And also, this great deed kind of salvation, uh, it gives you leverage over God, doesn't it? Uh, because you see, if you've done some great deed, then, and then God gives you salvation then you've got some leverage over him. So God can't just ask anything of you. Uh, you've got some rights. Uh, uh, you've paid your dues. Uh, you've got some control. 
But the ordinariness of God's offer, the graciousness of it, it levels Naaman. Uh, it just go wash in the Jordan River. He knows what that means. It means a prostitute could do that as well as he could, as well as a man of moral virtue like Naaman. Uh, it means everyone's on the same level. Uh, everyone's a sinner. Everyone is lost. Uh, and everyone can only be saved by sheer grace equally. And Naaman hates that. You know why? It offended him. You know why? It offended his pride. The gospel of grace, the ordinariness of the gospel of grace offends people. My own stepfather, uh, for example, a faithful Jew, uh, he mocked the gospel. He said, you mean to tell me, David, that a terrible person, I can be a terrible person my whole life, uh, and then pray to receive your Yeshua uh, and be saved. Uh, uh, that's all I have to do. That's it. huh? And it doesn't matter how I lived my whole life in the past. That, that's too easy. That's too simplistic. Uh, and more than that, he says, it's unfair. It's unjust. It's nonsensical. It's offensive. His pride was offended. And the pride in our hearts is what makes this world a miserable place. The gospel of Yeshua the Messiah offends everyone. But it especially offends the part of your heart that's making this world a miserable place. It offends the part of your heart that needs to be challenged. Or else there's no hope for this world. The ordinariness of Yeshua offends us because it shows us that, that his salvation offends our pride. And therefore, the gospel offends everyone. Traditional societies are offended. Why? Because the gospel says that, that morally virtuous people and morally failed people are on the same level. Traditional, moral, religious people do not want to hear that. But the gospel also offends, on the other end of the spectrum, offends the liberal, secular society as well. Because the gospel says it's not true that, that, that all can find God in their own way. No, you must come to the grace of God by the way he's provided, which is through faith in Yeshua the Messiah. There's only one way to salvation, and that greatly offends the secular liberal mind. But in Matthew 11:6, Yeshua says this, Blessed is the one who does not take offense at me. On the overhead, please. Matthew 11:6. Yeshua says, You want blessedness? If you really want to encounter me, the real me, you must feel this offense. And if you come to know me, you will wrestle with this offense. And if you've never wrestled with the offense of Yeshua, you have not come to understand the trajectory of, of his salvation. You've not come to understand the, the graciousness of his salvation. And you don't really know what he stands for. If you've never felt the offensiveness of Yeshua and sensed it and struggled with it, you really don't know the fullness of what the gospel is. So you should feel this offense, but you must not take offense. Because Yeshua says, if you take offense at me, my blessedness cannot come into your life. If you let the fact, Yeshua says, that my gospel offends the part of the world that you're from, uh, in some aspects of my teaching, if you, let my, if you let your cultural biases keep you away from me, then I cannot do any miracles in your life. Because for me to work in your life, you must receive me and embrace me and follow me. So number one, that's the fact that Yeshua is offensive. And number two, that's why he's offensive. Now finally, number three, on the overhead. 
you now need to be selectively offensive as well. So let's look at how this passage relates to us. Uh, in the last part of the passage, in Mark chapter 6, uh, Yeshua shows us that, that if you follow him, just as he offends people, and therefore evokes this visceral rejection, you too will offend people if you're following him and evoke visceral rejection. And Yeshua is preparing his disciples now for this rejection. Uh, and, and, what's, and this is what the shaking the dust off your feet phrase is all about. If you look more carefully at this passage, we're going to see Yeshua is calling us to a highly selective type of offensiveness. Let's look first at Yeshua's directions to his disciples here. Yeshua says, when I send you out, I want you to minister to the villages like this. He says, first, I don't want you to go out with some big war chest. I don't want you to go out with so much money you can live on the outskirts of town and then commute in and preach in the village square and then go back home at night. No. He says, instead, I want you to be dependent on the hospitality of the people you're ministering to. I want you to live among them. Uh, and if we remember that in those days, uh, in that, that culture, hospitality was a sacred thing. And so for the disciples to come in, come in with this message of Yeshua, but to, but to be able to have to depend upon the hospitality of the people there, uh, to live among them, to become dependent on them, it was an act of both tremendous respect and humility. Secondly, they don't just preach. You know, they also were to serve uh, and to do miracles. Look at Mark 6, 12, and 13. They went out and they preached. The people should repent. Notice the, the key of the gospel here is repentance. Uh, uh, and they drove out many demons. And they anointed many sick people with oil and they healed them. So they both preached and they ministered. Uh, they prayed for people. They served people. They, they, they anointed them uh, and, 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 and worked with Yeshua's authority. They met people's needs. And they came with this amazing integrity and simplicity of life with regards to money and, and material things. But Yeshua says, despite the fact you're going out to serve people and to pour your life out for them, you're also going to have rejection. He says, in many cases, people will reject you. You'll have to leave that town and shake the dust off your feet. Which means that this town is now responsible for what, I, for what, I, what, what you told them. Uh, and they'll be judged accordingly. Uh, in shaking the dust off your feet, the disciples are saying this. Uh, I've told you now about Yeshua. I've given you the information. I've preached the gospel. And now the responsibility belongs on you. It's no longer on me. That's what this phrase means. So Yeshua is saying you need to be incredibly attractive. But you should go out uh, and, 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 uh, and share your faith. You should go out loving people, be attractive to people, ministering to them. Uh, you should be sacrificially giving to people, to serving them, healing the sick, casting out demons. In that sense, you're going to be incredibly attractive. But you're also going to be telling people that I'm the one and only true Lord and Savior of this world. And that's going to be very offensive. And this mixture uh, of attraction and, and of offense is exactly what we see in the history of the early Messianic community. Historians will tell you, on the one hand, the message of Yeshua, uh, proclaimed and lived by the early Yeshua followers in the first few centuries after his death and resurrection, it was the most exclusive and therefore the most offensive message the pagan world had ever heard. The pagan world said, everyone has, has their own gods. Uh, you have your gods, we have our gods. Now along come these Messianic believers, these Yeshua followers, and they say, no, Yeshua is Lord. This was the most exclusive uh, and offensive message the pagan world had ever heard. 
But on the other hand, these Yeshua followers were the most inclusive acting people the world had ever seen. They were the most exclusive sounding people the world had ever heard, but also at the same time the most inclusive acting people the world had ever seen. Yeshua followers, they cared for the poor in a way the pagan world never did. Yeshua faith was welcoming to all ethnic groups uh, and brought their races together. Uh, it reached out to every socioeconomic class, the upper and the lower classes, in a way that the pagan culture thought was completely improper. Uh, and the overhead. How do you account for this? The Messianic believers were the most exclusive sounding group in history, and at the same time, the most inclusive acting group in history. And as a result, they were incredibly attractive, and, they, and the faith grew like wildfire. And they were also incredibly offensive, and therefore they were terribly persecuted. These are the facts of the early history of the Messianic movement. They did exactly as Yeshua instructed. They were selectively offensive. Not offensive to everyone. Not attractive to everyone. They were selectively offensive and attractive. And this is a test for us also. If you say you're a Yeshua follower, here's the test. If you're never offensive, if you never experience rejection or hostility... For your faith, you're either being a coward and you're hiding your light under a bushel, or you're being inconsistent or backslidden or a compromiser. Uh, but if you're always offensive, uh, if you're constantly clashing with everybody all the time over your faith, if you're always in conflict, if you always feel like everyone's picking on me, then you may not be being persecuted for righteousness' sake, but you may be being persecuted for obnoxiousness' sake. <laughs> And God does not promise help in that, situ- in that case. <laughs> he says, blessed are those who are persecuted for my sake. He doesn't say, blessed are those who are persecuted for being obnoxious. <laughs> if you add personal obnoxiousness and abrasiveness to your witness, majoring in the minors, picking fights over everything, acting like a victim all the time, uh, being unwise in your speech, if you add personal obnoxiousness to the natural offense of the gospel, you're just going to be constantly offensive, and you're going to end up not being attractive to anyone. So according to the Bible, if you're either always offensive uh, or never offensive, if you're always attractive and never offensive, or you're always offensive and never attractive, there's probably something wrong. So do you pass this test of being both attractive and selectively offensive in your life and your witness for Yeshua? <clears throat> so examine yourself. And if you don't pass the test, where do you get the power to begin to do so? Where do you get the power to be exclusive and insisting on the gospel's proclamation? There's only one way to God. And at the same time, be incredibly inclusive, inclusive acting in your love and your service to others. And the answer is right here in our text. We really miss this ultimate put-down that's kind of hidden here in our text. We usually miss the ultimate way which the hometown people, they're bashing Yeshua. Look at Mark 6, verse 2. Where did this man get these things, they asked. What's this wisdom that's been given him? Basically, who does he think he is? You know, he's not such hot stuff. And then the next verse, Mark 6, verse 3. Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Miriam's son? Now, you may not have noticed this reference to him being Mary's son. But it's an incredible put-down. This now, remember, is a traditional patriarchal society. It's a patrilineal society. 
in which your lineage, your ancestry, your tribe, your identity is passed down from your father. And therefore, your name is always traced through your father. Uh, in Judaism, you're called the, the, the son of, of your father. You're never called the son of your mother. For example, Yeshua ben Nun, right? Yeshua, the son of Nun, not Yeshua ben, whatever his mother's name was, ben Sarah. Uh, it, it, it's, it's, uh, it's Joshua. It's not Joshua, son of Sarah. It's Joshua, son of Nun, his father. It's Simon bar Jonah, you know, Simon, son of Jonah, not Simon bar Rachel or Simon, son of Rachel. No. Your name is always traced through your father, never through your mother. No one has ever named Yeshua ben Miriam or Yeshua bar Miriam, depending on the Hebrew or the Aramaic. Never. It's always Yeshua bar Yosef. Always. That's how Hebrew culture and language works. So to call Yeshua Miriam's son is the ultimate insult. Remember, this is, this is his hometown. Uh, they know his background. You cannot hide things in a small town. One of the things you cannot hide, especially when Joseph and Mary get married in June and the baby's born in October. <laughs> small towns never forget things like that. They know this probably wasn't Joseph's son. Of course, ironically, they were right, but not for the reasons they thought. (laughs) They're basically saying, you think you're hot stuff, Yeshua. We don't even know who your father is. Maybe it's Joseph, maybe not. So you're a man without a father. And in our culture, that means you're a man without an identity. You're a nobody. You're a bastard. Well, how unfair! We say that, that, that they would disgrace and shame Yeshua in this way. That he didn't deserve this. But that's what he came to do. Because on the cross, Yeshua truly became a man without a father. And he cries out, Matthew twenty-seven forty-six: My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yeshua got the only visceral rejection that can really destroy you. He got the rejection of God the Father himself. Yeshua, he stood in your place. He took the punishment that you and I deserved for everything that that we have done. And he did it voluntarily. He did it out of love. On the overhead, he got the ultimate rejection so that we could get the ultimate acceptance. His rejection is our acceptance. He suffered rejection so that we could receive acceptance. And our acceptance, in order for it to happen, meant his rejection. And so in Yeshua, we now become children of the king, of the father. We become sons and daughters. We have a name. We have a place. And that means we can now take and deal with any other kind of rejection that comes our way. It doesn't matter what they say about you. It doesn't matter what they think about you. Who cares what the critics think? or the news media thinks, or the government thinks, when you have the love of the king, the king of the universe, do you see Yeshua doing this for you so that you can now handle rejection? Do you see him being rejected, getting the ultimate rejection, the only rejection that could really ever destroy you so that you could be brought into the family of God? Do you see this? Does it melt you? Does it change you? Does it affirm you? 
When you see this, you now have the truth. It does a type of truth that does not lead to exclusivity, but to inclusivity. What do I mean? Critics will often say, if you think you've got the, 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 the one and only truth, then you're going to be exclusive. And I, this is how I answer. Well, that depends on what this truth is on the overhead. If the core truth of your life is a man dying for his enemies, for people who do not believe what he believes, how can this lead you to become superior or mean or self-righteous or exclusive toward anyone else who may have a different view? And guess what? The man dying on this cross is not just a man. He's not just anybody. He's the unique son of God on the overhead. If God himself, when he comes to earth, and he, and he does all this, and he dies for me on the cross, then I know that, that at the heart of the universe, the very heart of the universe, at the heart of ultimate reality is this. Self-giving love, not power and conquest. And now that gives me both the ability and the reason to turn to people around me, of people who don't believe what I believe, maybe even are hostile to my belief, and yet to pour my life out for them anyway. That's the most exclusive truth possible, that the Son of God has come and died for me, but it leads me to the most inclusive life possible. Do you see this? Are you willing to be both attractive and offensive, selectively offensive? The closer you identify with Yeshua and with his rejection on the cross, the more you'll become both incredibly attractive and a selectively offensive person and therefore a powerful and effective witness for him. Someone who will make a real difference in this world. Amen. Let's stand and pray. Hallelujah. I'll ask the music team to come on up, please. Hallelujah. Father, we thank you for your word today. Your word from the book of Mark. Uh, on the offense of the gospel. Like Naaman, Lord, we know it often offends our pride. So, Lord, help us today to humble ourselves before you, to lay aside my pride and my ego, and to come before you uh, like a little child. Help me, Lord, to confess my sins and to turn from them, and to turn to you, to trust in you, uh, to accept your grace, commit my life wholly to you. Lord, you tell us, blessed is the one who does not take offense at me. So, Lord, help us to receive and embrace and follow you, including any part of your teachings that, that in the natural or we may not like. Lord, help us to be both attractive and selectively offensive. Attractive in sharing our faith, in loving people, in ministering to them, in sacrificially serving and giving and praying for the sick and casting out demons. But also help us to be selectively offensive in never compromising the gospel. In boldly proclaiming that you, Yeshua, are the one and only Lord and Messiah and Savior. And no one comes to the Father but through you. Lord Yeshua, thank you that on the cross you got the ultimate rejection. So that we could get the ultimate acceptance. Help us, Lord, to proclaim this message today to all whom you put us in contact with. We pray this all in your name. Pashem Yeshua. Amen. Shabbat Shalom.